Hello and welcome to episode 218 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I am your host, Weishan, and as usual, I've got my favorite co-host with me here today, Tony. How are you doing? How good, are you good. doing? I'm doing well. Uh, <laughs> got uh, It's a little bit windy here on the balcony. Not sure for how much longer I'll be able to sit out here uh, for the podcast, but it is a beautiful night, though. Though a little bit chilly and a little bit windy, so I do apologize for the draft, but thankfully we have a guest on this week, so we don't have to banter that much. Uh, Wei Shen, how about a little bit of that? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Yes, we have a guest on this week. His name is David Hardoon. He's the Senior Advisor for Data and AI at Union Bank of the Philippines. Previously, he was the first ever CDO and head of the data analytics group at the Monetary Authority of Singapore. So now he's joined a bank. Um, but before we get into that interview... Well, wait, uh, wait, 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 actually, I would, I would like to say, because I did actually listen to this interview and <laughs> seriously listen to this guy. I, I really enjoyed listening to him talk about AI, machine learning, it was very engaging. You know, it's, it's some complex topics. You guys really talk, touched on some interesting, thought-provoking topics. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to get lost in the weeds, but he's really good at kind of explaining these complex topics, but in an engaging way where you're able to easily follow along. So definitely do that. But yes, this week we have some good stories up that I just wanted to highlight really quickly. Um, we have a story going up. Hopefully by the time this is uh, published, you'll be able to have both of these online. But um First one is Hamad Ali sat down with Anne-Marie Darling of Goldman Sachs to discuss uh, how the firm, how the bank is building out its marquee platform. And it touches on so many, it, it really kind of, it's a good case study because it shows how the industry as a whole is moving around the importance of open source, APIs, cloud, you know, this idea of desktop app interoperability, those kind of themes that we talk a lot about in this podcast, we can see it all with what Goldman Sachs is doing, what they're rolling out currently this year and what they have planned for 2021. Other story is uh, 2018, Thomson Reuters sold uh, its unit that would become refinitive to a consortium consortium led by uh, uh, Blackstone. And that rebrand to refinitive, because Thomson Reuters still exists, it means that uh, users of of, of refinitive are many of the APIs that connect in the refandom for these users need to be updated for the rebrand. And that's actually, it's proving to, it's going to prove to be a challenging, potentially costly uh, endeavor. So we, we uh, have an article about that. Highly recommend checking out both of those, but you can read those stories for some precious, precious subscribers. Uh, if you're not a <laughs> subscriber, then you're just missing out. You can go read something else, I guess, but you get to at least listen to David. Uh, wax poetic about machine learning. Yeah, uh, just back to the conversation that I had with David, it was really interesting. I, well, I, I felt I was definitely engaged, and he's he is a an excellent speaker as well. So yeah, I, I think I, I made a good choice. Um, well yeah, we we well, <laughs> last couple have been good. I've been enjoying them. <laughs> uh, we, we we speak a little bit about how uh, machine learning algos may unintentionally converge, and uh, you also get to hear me uh, mix up or kind of stumble on the word adversarial. Adversarial. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, let's get to it. See you next week. Till next week. Okay, and this week we have David Hardoon. 
Senior Advisor for Data and Artificial Intelligence at Union Bank of the Philippines, joining us on the podcast. Hi, David. Welcome Hello. to the podcast. Hello. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. How are things holding up in Singapore, where you're at? Well, pretty good, actually. I mean, uh, I have to give it to them. The government has managed the situation pretty well. We've not been having any community infections for the last uh, several days. So, so far, still so good. The only minus, uh, one would call a minus in Singapore, is that as it's a city, uh, city-state, um, you, you can't go very far. <laughs> so, so that's the big minus of not being able to travel. It's like, uh, <laughs> I want to go slightly further. You're like, I'll just go to Sentosa today. Next day, I'll go to Woodlands. And yes. then yes. <laughs> maybe to the bot close to JB, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So whenever my friend's telling me, oh, we're in, we're in quarantine, we're just going to go to the woods, in the cabin in the woods. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do that in Singapore. Yep. <laughs> but otherwise, all's great. All's, all's gravy. <laughs> That's good to hear. So just before we get into our topic today, um, so before uh, you joined Union Bank, you were first you were the first CDO and head of the data analytics group at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, yes. and then later a special advisor on AI. So if you could uh, maybe just briefly tell our listeners, you know, some of your experience, basically um, coming from the flip side of the coin here, you know, regulator's perspective, and now at a bank, you know, um, what, what are some of your uh, experiences, I guess? Well, let me maybe start with one of the, the, the biggest learnings, and it was it was truly a learning, uh, an appreciation, I would maybe call it, is learning that there is truly a harmony and a balance of innovation and governance. You know, when you usually kind of think about, especially when you start off from the injury side, it's like you're trying to run away from governance as much as possible. It's like, let's, let's kind of avoid regulation. But I have to admit, I truly not coming from the regulatory mindset to begin with. And then going into it, I've learned and appreciated, in fact, good governance, good re- regulation um, results in phenomenal innovation. It really creates, it basically makes it as a breeding ground for the possibilities. Because what it, what it is, it's not what you can do, but asking the question of what you should do. So that's, that's I want to start with that. Otherwise, if you think about it from a regulatory point of view, from a supervisory perspective, from a central banking, because, you know, the monetary authority of Singapore is kind of everything in one house. Mm. It's the same challenges. It's the same question that every financial institution has. Like we're now seeing this, very, you know, rapid transformation in the industry. People are becoming a lot more digital. There's a, there's a higher expectation. You know, now when you send money, it's like, what do you mean three days? What do you mean a day? It's like it should instantaneously appear somewhere else. So that also means that from a supervisory perspective, from an oversight point of view, there's a need to be able to handle that, understand it, uh, uh, emulate, you know, look at very shocked. So they need to equally uh, uh, get with the game, yeah. <laughs> get with the game plan when it comes to data. So uh, same, same as, as, as one will say locally, but different. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I haven't heard that for a while. Uh, but it feels like home, same, yeah. same, but different. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, I, I thought we could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, today I thought we could talk a little bit about how like machine learning algorithms may unintentionally converge. And yeah. this is kind of uh, a thought that um, uh, some, someone that uh, who recently at Morgan Stanley also uh, told me about this, and he said that, uh, you know, one of the issues that firms can run to with the trading algorithms, for example, is, is bias, and which can sometimes, and he used the word, 
uh, insidious. It can be insidious at times. Um, they're all learning from the same data, and you know they're, they're struggling to make algorithms that and 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 to feed them with different data. So sometimes, you know, what what would happen is that the, so the challenge there is trying to ensure that the market stays fair and orderly, even though some of the algorithms might be looking at the same signals. So I want to know, I want to get an idea of what you think about this and, and you know, what, uh, what are some of the systemic risks that uh, this poses? And if you could give some examples of how yeah. that could happen in the capital markets. Yeah, so, so let, let's kind of lay out the premise first. Now, if you think about it, um, and we don't actually have to go too too much back in time, you know, way back machine, where ultimately the type of data that financial institutions or be capital, you know, uh, capital trading firms, uh, venture capitalists, whatnot, the data that kind of look like look at, excuse me, would be largely proprietary, or they would be able to acquire it. And even if another firm, another trading desk can access it. We're not talking about that many. So there's a control in terms from a magnitude and scale point of view. So that's, num that's number one, the data, what you're looking at in terms of making an informed decision. Then step number two, I mean, look, one of the biggest uh, trading secrets or engines was, you know, the quantine. And the equally, they, they used to be very much guarded. So likewise, what you would do on that data, how you would analyze it was your IP would be relatively different from the others. So remember, we have data that, again, largely is different in terms of what I'm looking at. And then fundamentally, what I'm doing, it could be also equally largely different. And the reason I wanted to highlight these two, because in the end of the day, especially when you're looking at the capital markets, when you, it's, it's about I'm trying to make a trade. I'm, and and mm -hmm. what's the goal of a trade is I'm trying to make money. So the objective of all these firms is the same objective. Make money effectively. Now, if I have this arbitrage of information and I have this arbitrage of application of it, the analysis, then I'm look, likely looking at something that someone else isn't. I'm able to kind of leverage on it. And therefore, if I've done my homework, I've done my right thing. Great. Bob's your uncle. I made some uh, money on it. Now, where the problem now comes in and being introduced with this increase of magnitude of accessibility to data, as well as with the world of machine learning is, largely speaking, the type of data that multiple firms, in fact, not even firms, individuals can access to us, it's, it's available to anyone. You can you know, go to Reuters, you, you can buy that data, you can go to open source, um, just scroll, crawl the web. So ultimately, that proprietary data that previously was the main piece, was the main dish, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So now we're all relatively looking at the same data. That's number one. Number two, with Equally, you know, cloud adoption, the broader understanding and appreciation of machine learning and artificial intelligence, that knowledge of the techniques and the methodologies is, well, I mean, it's on one hand, it's a good thing, it's relatively common knowledge. And at the end of the day, there's only a, a, a relative a finite pool of techniques. Anyone, you can now go and boot up an instance on your cloud of preference and have access to all of those machine learning techniques. So now the second degree is we're also mutualizing in terms of the methodology and the analysis. Now, remember the original goal is I'm trying to make money. But now you have a situation that you that I believe or they think they're making a trade based on some knowledge, based on some understanding, and therefore, great, we're going to do something. But now you're having this convergence on the data level. We're all looking at the same thing. And we're also having convergence on an algorithmic perspective because we're approximately, in a general sense, all doing the same thing. Now, 
Where is the risk is imagine everyone is doing the exact same trade at the same time. You're going to get potentially these massive you know, fluctuations of everything's going down. You, you know, it's like a runaway train. Everything's starting to move up and so forth. That's a genuine risk. That's a genuine risk because in a way, it's it's artificially, well, I don't want to use the word manipulate. You see, this is the the the, 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 the echo of ringing a regulator, but you know what I'm going to refer to, that you're creating a situation whereby it's not a reflection of actually what's supposed to happen. You're, your activity, you're becoming a market maker to a certain degree without any intention of being one effectively. So this kind of convergence is something that on two levels we need to be aware of. One, as a firm, when I'm making a trade, I now need to think very deeply of what I'm just about to do is another another 50 people, 100 people, or 10 people, which are about to do the exact same thing. And am I able going to get that, you know, that delta, that arbitrage that I believe I'm going to be getting? That's number one. So that's from a more of a self-interest point of view. But now from a supervisory and a regulatory perspective is, you, obviously, you do not want to have these very, very you know, volatile activities ongoing within your market. It's, it's, well, you just simply don't want that. So how do you control this? How do you manage this? It's, it, I'll be very honest with you. I don't have the answer for that, but it's something that we need to think of. And let me give you one example, which could be a bit extreme. We've had this shift of people moving closer and closer and closer and closer to the exchanges. Why? To get that arbitrage of time. But now we're having more powerful machines, more accessible data. So maybe a solution of that is actually having an, an artificial interference by saying, I'm going to delay execution by a few milliseconds just to get that differentiated activity across multiple trades. Again, I'm, 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 I'm not suggesting that, I'm not promoting that, but I'm just saying, you see, we need to think about things differently because if we're moving in this direction whereby we're trying to get to the fastest trade, everyone's trying to do that, Everyone's using the same kind of techniques. Everyone's looking at the same data. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I see. I see where you're getting at, and that's 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 quite an interesting point, right? The thing is, so I mean, just coming back to the data itself, you you did say that the proprietary data is getting smaller and smaller, yes. but. Do firms still do do investment firms still think that way? Do trading firms still think that way, or do they still think that I have I have an edge? Uh, this is this is where I specialize in, and they don't realize that okay, I'm using a lot of data that I can get from uh, I don't know, yeah, uh, Bloomberg, Reuters, um, or maybe even alternative data providers, um, you know, and 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 then using so-called similar techniques to other people, uh, other firms. So how would they, I guess, how would they get their edge back, you know, and, and get their, yeah. You're absolutely correct. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're not, but the challenge here or the, the, the new, the new uh, parameter in the equation is you now need to suddenly consider it because you may be working on that premise that I'm, this is proprietary knowledge, it's proprietary information, and therefore I have an edge that you don't, but actually every Tom, Dick, and Harry has it. <laughs> but you're not aware of that. Now that will have potential, potentially, you know, significant consequences. And what, what I'm kind of, again, I don't want to be a, a Grinch here, but what I'm saying is that with the availability, the likelihood of the 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 fact that other uh, uh, institutions, other trading firms, and even other individuals, because you remember, it, it's going to say that I can just simply be an individual and have the same degree of accessibility to the same degree of information. Obviously, I mean, may not be doing the trades at the same magnitude, but we're talking about ultimately information and how it's being leveraged. We need to suddenly consider of, well, 
am I able to truly um, have that estimation that I've had previously, given now that there's such a degree of accessibility? The honest answer is we don't. We're hoping not. But as once uh, when I used to work still in consultancy and a salesperson always used to tell me, David, hope is not a strategy. And definitely when you're out to make money from an investment perspective, I would say uh, hope shouldn't be the strategy. It should be definitely there. We all need hope. <laughs> you know, hope will bring us together. But hope is not a strategy. And it's something that both from an investment firm point of view need to consider. So in other words, it's exactly to your question, how do I get my edge back? So even down to saying, should I be using uh, open source? Uh, and when I say open source, I don't mean the actual platform. I mean the codes because of the fact that everyone else can use it. Maybe it's actually a motivation saying, no, I need to invest to make sure I am building something. I'm designing something that is not available for everyone else, or it has a delta that others don't have at least now. Um, we, need, we need to think about that. We need to think about that. And then equally, from a supervisory perspective, this is a new risk. This is a new risk. And we I can't remember when this happened. I think it was about, what, three, four years ago. We And since then, there have been a few of them. We've, we've seen when, what was it called? When algorithms went wild. <laughs> when you suddenly have this, you know, this blip going down and, and when they investigate, it was like basically all, and it's even not that sophisticated algorithm, basically they're all just triggered their, their stop losses. It, 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 it was nothing. It's just that every algorithm suddenly thought based on its analysis and based on its data, oh, we need to sell because my stop loss. Duck, 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 duck. And it just resulted in this massive downfall where in fact, one would say it wasn't truly justified to that extent of a degree. Mm. Okay, okay. Then in, in, in the case, you know, let's say yeah, when you said open source earlier that they are taking the codes, right? Um, what if the firms are actually, and I think a lot of asset managers uh, and in other investment firms as well, quants and the likes of that, they are actually overlaying their own algorithms or their own codes on top of that. So then I guess statistically, or what what is the probability that you would end up with, I guess, very similar codes to someone else? Oh boy! See, this this is the million-dollar question. Um, I would say that look, as long as and, and actually that's where the human always has to be part of the equation because that's honest. We will do sometimes stuff that we we, we just can never predict. <laughs> I will make assumptions that we no one can actually ever kind of like, oh, why are you doing this? Oh, because, but. We need to consciously, and I think that's the argument. Previously, the name of the game was speed. And if you look at it, ultimately, everyone's physically moving their premise as close as possible to the exchange. That was the name of the game. It, it, that, sh that should not be it anymore because speed, to a certain extent, is irrelevant. I mean, because nowadays you have fiber optics at every location. It doesn't matter whether you have to be in the building or per you, you can get that degree of, of, of uh, uh, speed and access. So now it really is that question and necessity of thinking, how do I maintain that edge? How do I embed a domain knowledge? How do I embed understanding? And look, it's being done. I mean, I, you know, you've seen hedge funds which that will go and hire, you know, people from completely so-called irrelevant industry, from you know, philosophy, geography, in terms of providing and embedding that additional dimension, additional perspective to an investment theory effectively. So that's just, but that's something I'm saying that we need to think of, both from an investment point of view, but more importantly, because at the end of the day, look, the goal, the role of the supervisor or regulator, which is it's a bit uh, sometimes unfortunate, is they, they need to be the worry wards. They need to think of, you know, what if this happens? 
what if this happens? What if this happens? And, the, and, it, and it's, a, it's a serious and important question. Are they considering? Are they running, for example, right now, amongst the many stress tests that they're running, are they running a stress test whereby there's a convergence of algorithms? What will be the impact on my exchange board? What's going to be the impact with respect to the capital, the liquidity? I mean, literally. And it's all driven from simulations and, and situations of, let's say, small-scale convergence to even large-scale convergence. Maybe the probability of it happening is, you know, very, very small. But again, as a supervisor and a regulator, I need to be a worrywart. I need to say, even if it's an, an unlikely event, look, COVID-19, I guarantee you, Okay, maybe I won't guarantee you, but I was willing to say that I'll, I will go on a limb that before COVID-19 happened, before this extends of a catastrophe of shutdown, no one ran the simulation. I'm pretty damn sure because they're like, ah, nah, this, this, this will never happen in a million years. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, hello, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but you see, it, it's, it's the tools that we have, the capabilities we have, we can do it at scale to create this landscape of understanding risk, understanding situation. Hell, even financial institutions themselves can run. What happens if I'm going to do a certain activity, I'm going to do a certain trade, and multiple other institutions are going to do the same thing at the same time, and they running that kind of simulation? We can do it. We can do it at scale to have a better understanding of what are the risks. And to your earlier point of, okay, if I'm able to run this analysis and let's say this happens and this is kind of overall fluctuations, how do I do things differently in order to make sure I'm able to capture that arbitrage? I'm able to capture that delta effectively. Is that the idea of exploiting operational alpha? Absolutely. Absolutely. So operation alpha, essentially the kind of the thesis behind it goes beyond just the case of trade. It goes Beyond that, I mean, that's, it's part of it, but it also go effectively and say, well, how do I make sure and how to derive and leverage data, leverage on machine learning on AI capabilities throughout the middle and back office in terms of getting it from an end-to-end -end point of view? Because imagine that if you're able to also drive that efficiency and get your, let's say, your cost reduction, your risk mitigation, because ultimately risk as well, is a, there's a cost associated with that. Mm -hmm. You need to look at it from a totality point of view. And that's essentially the thesis behind Operation Alpha saying, look at it from an end-to-end -end perspective. Because the exact same techniques you can apply in the front office, on the trade, you can apply in the back office. You can apply in your, your compliance. You can apply in your regulation. You can apply in the people in terms of the actual execution associated with the underlying trade effectively. Could you give us a practical example of that? Like how that will work from the front office to middle and back? Okay. So I think front office... Pretty clear, pretty straightforward in terms of the realms of application, in terms of identifying opportunity and just capitalizing on that. As you're moving towards the middle office, if you think about it, that's largely in terms of, okay, sometimes people put fraud in the middle, sometimes they put it in the back. So I'll kind of mix and match this too, so apologies in advance. But if we're largely will take your middle office in terms of your, let's say your actual trading desk in terms of execution and risk calculations, there you're able to start on top of the actual, um, um, let's say, opportunity and the arbitrage has been identified. I want to make this trade. Now you need to go and look at your credit loss uh, ratio. You need to look at your risk analysis. You need to look in terms of potential exposures. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that essentially goes with it, as well as you need to submit a whole bunch of stuff as well, right? You need to submit various regulatory compliances. You need to submit uh, actual uh, uh, the, the trade execution. 
So the question goes into, can I start leveraging the data of the actual operational activity and seeing how can I optimize it? How can I optimize it both in terms of identifying risk, in terms of mitigating? For example, how am I currently analyzing the risk? What am I incorporating it? What are the attributes? What's the information that I'm leveraging right now to ascertain the risk? That's one dimension on its own. And secondly, from an actual operational of execution, what's happening? How is it being done? What's the process associated? Who's dealing with it? Where does it go to? You know, step A, step B, step C, step three. Modeling that and saying, well, how can I do this in the most efficient manner and in a way that achieves the objective that I'm interested? Essentially, think of this as uh, OR, operations research optimization. And then back office is, I mean, literally, it's, 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 it's your HR, it's your people, it's your manpower, and so forth. So what I mean by the thesis is it's an end-to-end -end point of view is saying, don't, and actually, by the way, this is not just for, for capital markets. It's also true for financial institutions or like banks or insurance firms. Well, a lot of times you'll find that the focus of using data, of using machine learning is in the marketing front in terms of the sell, effectively, your top line. But then it's like, well, hold on a second. You can equally apply machine learning and data capabilities in your AML. You can apply it in your fraud detection. You can put it in your suspicious transactions. You can apply it in your HR. You can put it in your operations. You can put it in your ATMs. It's about how do I make sure that I am leveraging the maximum amount of knowledge that I have from the entire procedure and improving on that. In other words, and, and actually this, uh, the completely different industry, but a, I, 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 just to put them up on a pedestal a bit, Amazon. You know, you, you, you have this continuous debate. In fact, I was having it with someone the other day. Was, is Amazon a logistics company or a data company? Because you're, you, you, it's, it's like you don't know where they begin and where they end because they are a logistic com company, but they're using the data of every single step within that logistics to optimize their logistics. Mm. You, you see what I mean? So it's not just about identifying that, oh, people who, who read this book, no, people like you read this book will also like this book, and therefore I should buy it. But once I click buy, that entire prop operational process of getting it to me is being optimized and improved in every single step of the way to minimize cost and maximize the operational efficiency associated with it. So that's the underlying thesis with operational alpha. Don't just think about the trade. Don't think about the sell. Think about every step along the way that's associated with it and how we can improve on that where there's opportunity to improve it. Because if I'm reducing my cost associated with the trade, that's equally uh, could be considered as improving my margin of the trade, if that makes sense. Hmm, that's really interesting. I never really thought about it that way, actually. That's, that's yeah, it's really informative. Okay, and then then in in terms of and then let's take a little bit of a twist here, but sure. uh, maybe just looking at some of these um, um, ML algos and and how they influence uh, how they uh, result. I mean, how sorry, how trading firms are using them to place trades, basically. How does adversarial uh, adversarial AI play a part in this? Uh, apologies okay. for my mumbling. <laughs> no, 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 no worries. It's it's a it's a, it's, it's a Friday and it's a mouthful. <laughs> so, okay, adversarial. I mean, I guess the birth of adversarial AI actually originally came from the generation of additional samples. Because one of the biggest problems in the whole world of machine learning is no data, no machine learning. So, what do I do with a situation whereby I don't have enough? I just build another machine to generate them for me. But then that kind of created a cascade of well, hold on a second. If I can build a machine to generate samples to learn a outcome, so, so think of it as that 
I want to learn the difference. Okay, just really bizarre one, uh, not bizarre, but let's say the difference between a dog and a cat. But I, I don't have enough samples to, to actually learn dog and a cat. So I actually have another machine, which its job is to generate samples that are of variation similarities to dogs and cats, but now go to this machine that is able to use it to learn the difference between dog and cat. So think of it as almost like a sequential effect. But that obviously, I mean, we're talking about this is like multiple years ago. Now, obviously, that's kind of gone through several step downs when adversarial is literally used in that sometimes negative context of adversarial, whereby it, it's it's really looking in terms of how to manipulate uh, an AI algorithm, whereby it will give it, let's say, a I think there's a the, the, I can't remember if there was a, a monkey or a horse. I can't remember the one where you would think that the algorithm was designed to classify correctly. But what the adversarial algorithm did, it embedded within it a, a pattern that is completely invisible to the human eye, but completely fooled the machine in terms of what it is. How does that work? What I mean? <laughs> no, okay, so think of it this way. Ultimately, and then maybe let's take a step back. When we look at an object, we're actually doing the same thing. We are identifying certain features, certain attributes in what we're looking at. So imagine you're looking at a car and imagine looking at a motorbike. You are picturing certain types of, um, uh, it could be color, it could be uh, um, um, from a dimensionality point of view, et cetera, et cetera, that ultimately represents what it is. But obviously we're doing it on a very, very high level. I mean, we have thankfully quite a few neurons in our brain. So that when I show you another image, even if it's half distorted and all that, you can infer and make out of it. Now, with all the sophistication of uh, machine learning, the way it works most of the time is that it will narrow down and find the minimum set of attributes that is able to learn that pattern. And a lot of times that is something that as a human it will be completely unintuitive. It, it literally will find some combination of pixels that has a consistency, let's say across the, the cars, that is different from the motorbikes, and it finds a combination of pixels, some kind of a, a permeation of those features that exists in a consistent manner within the motorbikes, but is different from the from the cars, right? Because that's ultimately what it does. It says, what is similar? You know, it's like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. So it says, what is similar amongst these guys, but different from these? And what's similar amongst these guys and different from the other ones? But what it learns ultimately is a very small subset. So if you're able to attack exactly that subset, if you're able to embed within it a change to those features, well, even though to you, because you, you look at it, you say, oh, that's a car, it will go, oh, no, no, that's not a car, that's a motorbike. Because it zooms in on that types of features, on those type of attributes that it had learned to be a motorbike. So you're fooling it, you're manipulating it in a certain degree. So where the concern with respect to adversarial attacks is now how it's being used to, because we're now pushing out more and more machine learning algorithms that essentially learn to when you want something, uh, when you want this book, since we're talking about books earlier, when to give you this marketing ad. So the question is, can I now start using a machine learning algorithm to manipulate your machine learning algorithm to give me the outcome that I want? Mm. I know this is this is kind of like it's going to that next level. It's like almost we need that music of the Twilight Zone, but it's literally there. We're in other words, we're actually pitching a machine learning algorithm against another machine learning algorithm to manipulate it to give us the outcome that we're interested in. Okay, so in in a trading from a trading point of view, uh, what would that look like? Okay, 
I, thankfully, I've not seen them yet in trading points of view. <laughs> I'm not quite sure whether we should be even saying this out loud. But imagine if uh, you look into a type of signals to uh, trigger a buy. Okay, let's just say that. Trigger a buy or trigger a sell. If, and of course, this will take a significant degree of sophistication because usually you will not have that aspect of access to those algorithms. But let's say, let's just oversimplify and saying that I'm able to now have an algorithm that's basically testing you. It's testing you in terms of trying to identify what are those signals, need features that you've learned that will result in you selling and those features that will result in you buying. If I'm able to learn that and I'm able to pick on those features are, I'm, and again, this is hypothetical, I'm able to hypothetically send out a signal that will trigger you to buy. And I'm then able to manipulate that because I know you're going to buy because I actually triggered you to buy. Right. Oh, that is, wow. So, okay, if in, uh, in hypothetical, since you said it, you, you haven't seen any of these in, in I, the market yeah, not right well, now. I don't think I want to see <laughs> how can How can traders uh, prevent this from happening? Yeah. Or how, when will they know that? Uh, how What signals should they look out for yeah. to know that an, an adversarial AI is actually trying to... Oh learn from their own machine learning algorithm. No, absolutely. And, and, and again, look, this, this whole process of machine learning and AI, it's, 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 an, it's literally an evolutionary process. I'm, okay, at least I, as a you know, research scientist back when I was in university, I, I honestly never thought about these studies. But as things are progressing, as algorithms are becoming more advanced, people go, oh, hold on a second, can I do that? And they build stuff and there you go, they can do that. So that now means, we need to start thinking about not just about building algorithms that are ultra efficient, because actually, if you think about it, that's what it is. It's trying to say, I want to learn the absolute minimum that is able to do something. And it is that minimum to a certain extent that can potentially be manipulated. So maybe now it's going down one step further saying, well, actually, it's not just about the minimum. Maybe we still need to learn some noise. So because again, Let's use us as a human as an example, which, by the way, because machine learning came from AI, actually, which came from neural networks, which came from actually humans. It was model form psychology. When we learn, we're actually consuming a heck of a lot of noise. But that noise, is it becomes critically important because when, again, you look at that car and there's subtle differences. It's a car that you've never seen in your life. It doesn't fit any of those features. You're still able to make that inference that is a car because you still have learned that noise around it, that, okay, uh, proportionately, it has wheels, it does this. I'm able to make that presumption that it's a car. So similarly, maybe we need to start thinking about algorithms that have a bit more robustness within them effectively to those changes of features. In other words, if I start manipulating those features, I start manipulating those signals, it's resilient because it has more, it has a buffer effectively. So you need to start changing a hell of a lot of features, a hell of a lot of signals in order to result in that outcome. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is actually building mechanisms and maybe a whole new breed of machine learning algorithms of authenticity. So, so literally before even going to that stage of saying, I'm going to now make a prediction, the buy or sell, I need to make a prediction. Is this authentic? Is what I'm getting, is the information that you're giving me, is it genuine can i how much trust can i assign it which actually to a certain degree is what we do as humans because and, and this is something which I, I always like to make this analogy i love behavioral science when i tell you something you don't just jump to make a conclusion well hopefully you don't just jump <laughs> no, 
or a, a, a decision, you, your first filter is, is this nonsense? How much do I trust it? Can I, can I use it? Can I incorporate this to make a decision? And then you make a decision. Equally, actually, by the way, humans also in reverse, when, when you do make a decision, when you make a prediction, uh, when you when you want to say something, you already made that decision. It's a decision. It's actually it's an algorithm. But then you have an additional layer on top of it, which you filter based on cultural norms. We, we, we spoke briefly offline about eth ethics. So sometimes you will think stuff that maybe not be quite ethical, but you have at least that filter layer that you tell yourself, yeah, no, I, I no, this is wrong. I, I let's not go down that path. So you see, we have this multitude of, again, I'm trying to make this analogy between humans and machines, but we have this multitude of machine learning algorithms. But each one of them is almost like an AI algorithm that is there to play a role. Is this real? Is this not real? Okay, it's real. Move to the next step. How can I use it? Oh, let's make a decision. So in a way, we need to kind of think of this kind of ensemble learning where perhaps to combat, and again, this is all hypotheticals, to deal with this manipulation and visceral attacks is, as I mentioned, that authenticity of the signal, authenticity of the data. Hmm. Wow. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a lot of work, though. I mean, like, it, <laughs> I mean, already they are working uh, on, uh, you know, building or yeah, uh, bu bu building machine learning algorithms that can help them to trade more effectively or perhaps gain an an, an edge or to find uh, bigger sources of alpha, you know. But at the same time, now they're going to have to be thinking about, okay, I need algorithms to then make sure that this information I'm getting is authentic from this, these few <laughs> different data sources. And also, at the same time, I'm increasing the number of data sources that I'm taking in. So it sounds like a lot of work. Well, I mean, I'm, 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 kind of, I'm laughing because I'm kind of thinking to myself, welcome to life. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it, it is. I mean, if there's one thing that we, as a society, as as a, as a you know race or whatever you want to call it, a phenomenal at is hacking things. We will way around it. I mean, uh, what, what would Bill Gates say that he will hire a lazy person to do a complex job because they will find the easiest possible way of getting it done? <laughs> That's our nature. When you bring a device, you're like, ooh, how can I fix it? How can I work around it? How can I manipulate it? So it's it's a bit of a, a, a unfortunately I, again and I'm saying this with a big smile on my face. It's okay, a never-ending cycle, but it's part of our learning curve. It's part of our understanding and sophistication associated with it, and unfortunately, our necessity to deal with it. But again, this is kind of why I started off. And when you asked me about one of my learnings, kind of coming from the the other side, mm. <laughs> that I don't know which side is the dark side, but the other side. Um, <laughs> is this harmonious approach between innovation and again I'm, I'm using innovation as this big you know abstract term and governance because not everything we can do we should do because sometimes it opens up a door to this pandora's box that you, we're just not ready for it so we can do it we can build all these algorithms we get it going but then you know step two step three and step four is like when it comes and it may come faster than we realize we just don't know how to deal with it yet and vice versa. Sometimes it's just not right. I mean, again, if you kind of veer off to the more ethical consideration of it. So, so governance in the end of the day is really meant about that. And then alternatively is by saying, you know, okay, you can do it, but this is how we need to change the landscape. This is how we need to change the, the operating environment to make sure you can play, you can have fun, but you don't break anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. 
not breaking anything. Hmm. Okay, and and I understand that your role at Union Bank now is to basically you're, you're driving uh, bank-wide strategy and operationalization of data and AI. Could you give us an example of you know uh, what you have done so far? I know it's, sure. it's not been very long yet, but uh, you know what are some of some projects that you're working on? Okay, so so actually, let me tie it back into what we discussed earlier about the operational alpha. So I can go down that path of you know, front end office, marketing and all that. And, and, and that's great, don't get me wrong. I mean, one of the phenomenal things about having this uh, digital and data-driven based approach is, and literally during lockdown, which Philippines has had, as mm. many other countries have, we still onboarded 300,000 customers without having effectively branches open. So you, you have that immense capacity of delivering customer service and customer needs. But let, let me put that aside because a lot of times we focus on Let me talk about the back end and what I mentioned. So for example, AML, that is a regulatory compliance. You need to make sure that any, any transaction that looks suspicious is reported and managed if it's truly indeed found to be the case. Now we all, well, I believe we all know that this is heck a complicated process because you're dealing with hundreds, if not millions of transactions. I mean, that's the nature of the world we live in. And the truth is, despite the, the best uh, effort done with the existing, uh, let's say, let's focus on AML and suspicion transaction related systems. Look, they have anything from 95 and above false positives. What that means is, let's say we're talking about a 10,000, or let, let, let's say simple, 100 uh, alerts. Out of those 100 alerts that you're investigating, 95 of them or 99 of them are found to be, like, it's just you who happened to buy a, a car or you sold your house. So, you know, it's just irregular blips, but nothing suspicious about it. Uh, but so you see, so there's two ends of it. One is in terms of how do you deal with that? You can't just throw bodies. You can't. It, it, it's, you're dealing with an insurmountable amount of transactions and it's only growing. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there's a genuine impact that we're forgetting, which is customer impact. No one likes, and I say this as a customer, likes having their transactions blocked or their account suddenly suspended because Mm, we don't know what's going on. Look, it's unpleasant, especially when you have to do be uh, 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 dealings. Like I said, you're selling your house. It's like, whoa, holy cow, my, my account is suspended. So using data, using machine learning, sitting on top of it to really now identify those patterns of irregularity, those patterns of regularity. Using machine learning on top of that, able to, on a conservative basis, slash those false positives significantly from anything from 40 to 50%. So think about that. While it may not sound like a phenomenal number, it actually is a phenomenal number, it's delivering that operational efficiency, maintaining that compliance regulatory requirement at the extent that it's needed, and customer satisfaction. So you see what I meant by that alpha. So it's not about the margin, just about the trade. It's about how do I incorporate all those steps in between to deliver that trade? Because if I've stopped that transaction, there's a hit to me. Maybe next time they're not gonna do it for me. If I can make sure that I'm able to do all those checks and get it through, mm, absolutely. So that's another example. And then, of course, if I go really back into back office and maybe make it more topical given the situation of COVID-19, I'm sure this is the case with many other financial institutions. We're doing, you know, uh, it's called rapid testing to, uh, you know, make sure that the staff is safe, that none one is, is under uh, uh, potential risk. So we're leveraging all the data that is coming out to really understand and identify employees who may be at higher risk for a very simple reason. To tell you, look, stay at home. <laughs> look, don't take the chance, don't take the risk. You can work from home and that's anyway part of the norm now. So again, 
using data, you, just like we're using data to um, uh, have that customer satisfaction and that hyper-personalization for customers, having that customer satisfaction with your employee, employee satisfaction, employee safety, employee hyper-personalization. So that's just, well, three actually. So you asked for one, I gave you three <laughs> off-the-cuff examples. Just curious. So, like for that uh, employee safety, you know, how are, how uh, what do, how do you identify who should be staying home or who who should stay home and who is able to well, I guess, go to the office when they want? Oh, no, no. Well, look, an evidence recommendation. But think about this way: one is unfortunately you will have employees that get sick, mm -hmm. and you want to understand, okay, what happened? I mean, is it literally just did it come out from the blue sky, or were you in certain situations? Are you in certain locations? Etc. Equally, are there any comorbidities? Uh, do they have any existing health conditions? And again, it's not to do with any uh, uh, menacing oversight, but it's to understand because if there are other people who have equally, they have asthma, for example. So in advance, even before you're even putting yourself at risk, we're saying, look, you, you've you, you've told us during you know your health checks and all this that you have asthma. Look, you're at high risk. Just stay at home. And the reason we want to do that is because it's a bit more uh, verbose than just saying anyone above 65 is a high risk. We were we already look since lockdown till now, we already know that's not the case. Mm. It, you you have from very young kids, which uh, unfortunately get it that some of them get serious. Some actually many of them don't. And equally, you have people which are 80, which have had it. <laughs> case in point, the president of the United States, <laughs> 70, not 80, who got it a week later is fine. So. It's not just about age, it's about multiple other elements. And we're still at the stage whereby we want to make sure that we're, again, obviously privacy, privacy at the highest of concern. But if there's a risk, there's a fiduciary responsibility. You don't want to tell an employee, no, you have to come to the office because you're, you're an employee. And then they uh, uh, put themselves in an unnecessary risk. They say, look, actually, given the fact that we're a digital organization, you can achieve the exact same level of work from home there's a potential, let's be, let's be safe. And to be honest with you, I mean, it's something that I, I don't think it's, it's um, uh, in our case, the bank is an anomaly in doing it. I think many are doing it, but I just wanted to share that as a, an example mm -hmm. of where data can actually help on the, the, the furthest back end side of the house of the office. Just like you have hyper-personalization on customers, hyper-personalization on employees, where COVID is one example. Okay. Well, this has been a really interesting chat, uh, interesting and informative chat. Uh, I really want to thank you, David, for uh, joining us on the podcast this week. It's really glad to have you on. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.